All right, it looks like we have a break and people popping in. So Heidi, to you, Ben. All right, thank you. Good evening, everyone. I'm Heidi Varner. I am a volunteer with the UES or the Unified Event Support um, Group for Relay for Life and Strides and Determination. And we are so excited to have all of you here tonight. Um, we're gonna talk about, let's talk ACS 101. And it's going to be a great call. We have so, so many people and so many experts on this call that it's so exciting. So our call is being recorded. So um, it will be posted on our Let's Talk landing page of ACS Resources next week. And we have a big tonight. So we ask that you please make sure you are muted so that everyone can hear. And we encourage questions for our experts. So please submit those through the chat. And Kayla will be monitoring that and we'll answer as many of those as we can. So as volunteers, we all fundraise for our American Cancer Society. And we probably get that question, where does the money go? Or how is this really making a difference? So ACS is on a mission to end cancer as we know it for everyone. Fundraising and donations make that possible for ACS to improve the lives of people with cancer and their families through our mission pillars, research, advocacy, and patient support. Our guests tonight are here to share more about how ACS does just that. So I'd like to welcome our first guest speaker, Dr. Douglas Hurst. He's an ACS funded um, researcher. His first major research grant was funded by ACS when he was an investigator studying the molecular mechanisms regulating how breast cancer metastasizes, which I know nothing about. Um, today, he is the scientific director of the biochemistry and immunia, immune, yeah. You can fix that, Dr. Hurst. <laughs> of cancer program with the American Cancer Society. His department oversees peer review and grant management as part of ACS's extramural grant program. Welcome, Dr. Hurst. Thank you so much, Heidi. Yeah, it's immunology. Uh, hey, welcome everyone. Good evening. Uh, what a fantastic night. Thank you so much for organizing this. I always get really excited to talk about our research program and uh, I guess to, to begin with, I'm not sure who has control of the slides. Do, do I share? Yeah, okay. Got it. You, you can go ahead and advance. The I have, yeah, nope. I have control. So just tell me when you want the next slide and no, I will try to click wants, on the right slide. <laughs> nobody wants to see my picture. Um, you know, as you heard, ACS is a complex organization. 3,000 employees you know, 2 million volunteers that make this happen. And, and you heard three different pillars um, to accomplish the mission, uh, patient support, the cancer advocacy. And what I'm here to talk about is discovery. Uh, Bill Dayhut oversees our, our pillar. And, and ACS is really unique. You know, I thought I knew a lot about ACS. Um, you heard that my first grant when I was an investigator was an ACS grant. And I volunteered for them for a number of years. I served on the peer review committees um, that that um, that evaluate grant applications, and I'll talk about that in a bit. But I I really understood the research side and and how ACS gives grants. But when I joined just over a year ago, 
I didn't realize the complexity and all these different pillars. So I'm still learning a lot and it's, it's great. It's a great organization to work for and to volunteer for. Um, so let's talk about discovery. Um, you can go to the next slide. The, the unique thing about ACS is not only do we give grants to investigators to do research, but we also have our own scientists right here in-house. And we have some outstanding teams uh, we have the Early Cancer Detection Science uh, team run by Bob Smith, and they're the ones that, that put out the, the screening guidelines um, that you see. Alpa Patel runs the Population Science Program, and I don't know if anyone was lucky enough to get on the call earlier today. She gave a seminar about the science behind the cancer prevention um, program. And, and then we also have Amadine Jamal, the Surveillance and Health Equity Science um, team. And, and I got to tell you, when I was doing research and I was writing papers, the, the very first cited paper in all of my papers was from Amadine's uh, group. Um, these scientists are some of the best in the world. They're very well known. I'm not going to talk about them today, though. Uh, I'm going to talk about our grant program, and you can go to the next slide, uh, the extramural science, uh, extramural discovery science. We're the ones that give the grants. We just hired, a little over a month ago, we just hired a new senior VP, um, Christina Nunziata. Uh, she's coming from the National Cancer Institute, um, so we're really happy to have her uh, be in charge. Uh, you can go to the next slide. Uh, <clears throat> I just want to show you just a few numbers uh, to illustrate what where the money is invested. We've we've invested more than five billion dollars since this the start of the granting um, aspect of ACS back in the 40s. We funded more than 32,000 grants since then. Um, more than 25,000 researchers and. I want to tell you we know how to pick the outstanding scientists because of those grantees, 50 of them went on to win the Nobel Prize. So we're really good at picking the most outstanding science uh, to move science forward um, and, and really make a dent in, in our mission. Uh, the cancer centers across the nation that, that are NCI designated are some of the top centers. and the directors of those centers, most of them have either been funded or are currently funded by ACS. And uh, historically, we've funded 50% women um, of our grantees. 50% of them are, are women. Uh, and, and our grantees are at uh, 1,100 institutions across the US. Uh, so next slide. Where are they located? Uh, just to show you a map, uh, we cover right now, this changes almost on a daily basis, but, but as of now, uh, we have 42 states that have uh, funded investigators. We're, we're about to add another one. Um, Hawaii is another one we're going to add. Uh, but this includes right now, 600, more than 670 active grants. And this is an investment of over $400 million. 
So go ahead and go to the next slide. What kind of science do we fund? Uh, basically, we fund all aspects of cancer research. Uh, we call this the cancer continuum. So this includes the basic science, some of the most foundational studies, the, the detailed mechanisms of molecules inside cells, what makes them a cancer cell, uh, and how they respond to, um, to other cells. We also have preclinical research, the translational science, the um, experimental therapeutics, uh, a lot of animal models and, um, and so forth. And then we also have research that's being done in patients, clinical trials and, and uh, work done in the community. So our research portfolio includes all aspects of cancer research. Go ahead and go to the next slide. This is organized into three different programs, and I just want to, you don't get caught up. This is kind of a, a detailed slide, but I just wanted to illustrate that um, because we, we have such a broad range of cancer research, um, we have to have people that understand different aspects of that research. So it's organized in these three programs. We have the biochemistry and immunology of cancer, um, that's directed by me and Nicole Lopinek is the program manager. The cell biology and preclinical cancer research that's overseen by Lynn Elmore and Rachel Commander. And then the clinical and cancer control research program overseen by Joanne Elena and Sabrina Times. Now, the way these are organized is that we have um, peer review study sections um, that that are organized around the science. So all of our, our grants that come in are investigator initiated projects. And, and so in, in order to evaluate that science, we have to recruit experts all across the US, those who understand that science. And so when we get the applications, we um, organize them into these peer review uh, committees, and they're evaluated by the scientists. We meet, we discuss them, and and then we choose the most outstanding and, and innovative projects uh, to be funded. So, you know, these are based, like I said, on the science. So if it deals with some of the detailed mechanisms of how DNA um, regulates cancer or RNA, uh, or the tumor biochemistry, the, the signaling molecules within cells, immunology and, and immunotherapy, all that comes under my program in the biochemistry and immunology. And then if it deals with experimental therapeutics or looking at the cancer cell, uh, the biology of the cancer cell, or the progression and the spread, the metastasis, that comes under... Uh, lens program, the cell biology and preclinical research. Um, and I'm excited about the next segment of what you're about to hear with Dr. Terry Badger because she's a funded researcher in a special program that comes under the clinical and cancer control research program, uh, part of the Cancer Health Equity Research Center, PERPS uh, is what we call them they fall under uh, this clinical cancer program. So you'll hear more about that in the next segment. Uh, but I wanted to give you 
sort of an idea of how we organize uh, our, our grant review and our programs. Um, it's all based around science. And then we have some specific programs uh, and, and I won't really touch into that tonight. Um, I'll spare you the details. Uh, go ahead and go to the next slide. And by the way, I see some uh, some questions coming in the chat. Uh, I'll be happy to to address them. Hopefully, we'll have some time at the end. I, I've been known to talk a lot, uh, but I'll try to leave a little bit of time for for answering questions. And if I don't answer it right now, I can throw them into the chat uh, as we move along tonight. But uh, we have priority areas, um, and and as I mentioned. All of the grants coming in are investigator-initiated projects, but they have to come into one of these priority areas. And these are very broad. Basically, if you're doing cancer research, it will fit into one of these broad priority areas. The reason we set this up uh, about two years ago was to be able to track what type of cancer research we are doing. And, and then we can identify additionally what areas might be in need, and maybe we need special programs to address some of the areas that are in need. So that's, that's pretty much why we have these broad um, priority areas. But as investigators do apply for a grant, they do have to explain how their research fits into one of these areas. Uh, go ahead and go to the next slide. Uh, just to show you, we don't discriminate on any cancer if you're doing cancer research, we're interested. Um, because it's initiated by the investigator, um, it's, it's just natural that we're going to have a lot of breast cancer grants because there's a lot of breast cancer researchers. Um, same with lung cancer, you see a big portion of leukemias. Um, but we also have a number of grants from very rare cancers. And then we have some grants, as I mentioned, we do some of the most basic studies that could apply to all cancers. So we have a significant amount of, of grants that, that could be applied across the board. So we really don't look specifically for a type of cancer unless we need a special initiative. And we do have a few special initiatives that focus on a particular cancer. Um, next slide. Uh, just wanted to illustrate that we cover pretty much investigators at, at all levels of, of where they're at in their career. Uh, we start with the postdoc fellowships. These are mentored grants. These are folks that have graduated with a terminal degree, uh, typically PhD or MD, uh, but they don't yet have an independent lab set up. Uh, they work as a postdoc. They can get funding from us. It basically covers a stipend and a little bit extra um, for travel to a conference or, or whatever they might need. Uh, we have another mentor grant for clinician scientists that want to develop a research program and might need a little help in doing that. So these are for, for scientists that are within the first six years of their clinical appointment that then allows them to start a research project. And then our biggest portfolio here in the center is a research scholar grant. And these are for faculty that have an independent lab within 10 years of getting that position. 
they can apply for a research scholar grant. And, and these are large, um, they're $240,000 per year for four years. So it's a big investment, um, but we get the most bang for our buck with these investigators. A lot of them, uh, in fact, the majority of them go on um, to get other grants uh, through the NIH or, or whatever, and really do develop successful careers based off of their initial funding with ACS. Um, and then we have other awards, uh, more senior level. Uh, the professor award is um, very competitive. We only give out um, one to three of these per year. And these are for those full professors that have um, done seminal work, um, paradigm shifting type of, of work in their careers. And then we have special initiatives, as I mentioned, um, and you'll hear about one, uh, as I mentioned, the, the CHIRC uh, from Terry Badger. Um, but we, we often have special initiatives uh, that go on. Go ahead and go to the next slide. I want to kind of wrap this up uh, here soon, but I, I want to let you know that we have two cycles per year. Uh, you can apply uh, in April or October. As I mentioned about that peer review, that occurs up until June. Uh, scientists will evaluate the proposals, they'll write critiques, and then we'll meet June and January to discuss those grants. It then the most outstanding grants move on to our council. Our council review is in September and March, and that's after that we make the funding decisions of those grants we want to fund, and then the grant activates January 1 or July 1. Next slide. I don't want to forget about something new. Um, this got started a year ago. Ellie Daniels, um, started the Center for Diversity and Cancer Research Training. And this is to provide some hands-on research training for underrepresented populations. Um, there's three programs right now for high school females. There's the Diversity in Cancer Internship for undergraduates, and then the postback program for those that have graduated with a degree but don't yet have the research experience to go on to a PhD. It's a, a two-year program that, uh, that puts them in a lab and gives them that experience that they then can pursue a PhD and a career in research. So with that, I wanna go, on, go ahead to the next slide. I don't think I have to tell this group that research does give us hope. Uh, I love this image from and a luminary from a Relay for Life. Go ahead, go to the, the last slide. Um, this is a picture of, of some of our uh, extramural discovery science team, but mixed in, we have some others. We have some of our intramural scientists, Alpa Patel and Ahmadine Jamal. And then we have some from Bright Edge. And I wanted to just let you know that we do have, um, conferences and, and meetings uh, where we collaborate with the other pillars. And I think that's an important part of what we do uh, that, that makes us more competitive. We, we have programs for our grantees, um, networking, and so forth. So with that, I'll stop talking because I think I probably exhausted my 10 minutes uh, and we want to hear from others, of course, but 
if I don't get a chance to answer your questions right now, I'll try to, to put them in the chat. Thank you, Doug. That was a great overview of the research. I know that is what most of us wonder the most about. And I remember early on as a volunteer, I actually knew someone from Michigan who was a stakeholder who got to go to Atlanta and review the grants. And it was always just so fascinating to me, but it also gave me insight as to why everything can't be funded because we just don't have the dollars. So thank you for making it clear. We do have one question that we think would be um, for you to answer. They wanna know if biomarker testing is being funded by ACS and are there easy to understand materials to share with people at our events? <laughs> and I guess that, that last part, the easy to understand material, that's specifically for the biomarker, uh, I'm assuming. But yes, we yeah. do have we do have grants that are looking at biomarkers. That's an important part of it. We have actually several grants um, and that spans all across that continuum I was talking about. We have some studies that are in patient populations, um, trials. We have some at the other end, at the most basic end to understand the mechanisms of molecules. And then we can understand whether or not they might be a biomarker um, either for diagnostics, you know, it, it, in order to understand if someone's going to get cancer or how they're responding to treatment and so forth. So yes, we do have grants. Uh, the second part of that question is a little more difficult because we have to dig up some of the grants and we have to, um, we can provide the general audience summary from those grants. Uh, and then if you have questions, you can, reach out to us and, and we can help uh, talk you through it, I guess. All right, thank you so much for your time and we appreciate all that you do and for sharing part of your night with us tonight. So thank you. Thank so you. now we're going to move on to um, Emily Carney. She is a team supervisor at our National Cancer Information Center. Hi. Hi. Yes. <laughs> we're actually going to Dr. Badger. You skipped a section. Oh, did I? I well, I have so many pages here, sorry. Let me find my right one. Yes, Dr. Badger. Um, we would like to welcome Dr. Terry Badger, who is one of our currently funded ACS researchers. Sorry about that, Dr. Badger, um, from the University of Arizona. Dr. Badger is a board certified psychiatric mental health advanced practice nurse. And currently she is the Eleanor Bowens Endowed Chair, Professor and Chair of the Community and Systems Science Division in the College of Nursing. And she is also a member of the Cancer Prevention and Control Program at the University of Arizona Cancer Center. She has been doing research for 25 years and has been funded by the American Cancer Society three times. Her current grant, which she's going to share with us, started in January of 22. And thank you for joining us. And I'd love to see your business card with all of your accolades on it. Well, I don't think anybody would be interested in that kind of business card, but here is, here's a little bit what's going on. But thank you so much for inviting me tonight. Um, I have a warm spot in my heart for the American Cancer Society, and they have been funding my research for a number of years. But the group that I'm, I'm particularly proud of is I am a founding, the founding member of a group that I have called Symptoms Health Innovations and Equity, which is a research group which is made up of a bunch of different researchers here at the College of Nursing. 
well, actually across the University of Arizona. And our focus is really all about research with cancer survivors and caregivers. And um, I was very pleased that, um, you know, we have a Cancer Health Equity Research Center so that we can really address the health needs of our um, various member cancer survivors and, and caregivers in our catchment area. So let's go to the next um, slide. My research has been built on all these years, has to do with, um, as a psychiatric mental health advanced practice nurse, I realized very early on that cancer survivors and their family members really needed more than what we were giving them. And certainly one of the big things had to do is that they were experiencing psychological and physical symptoms, both during and, and after cancer treatment that negatively affected their health. And I didn't feel like we were adequately addressing them. And particularly what we found was cancers who were Hispanic, who were younger, and that lived in rural area ex experienced a lot of health disparities. In other words, they didn't have any health care. You know, um, you know, we really didn't have any access to the kinds of things that they needed in order to help them through the cancer journey. Now, we did have uh, find over time that some, some, some folks' symptoms do resolve over time without any kind of interventions, but others need some sort of treatment to manage these symptoms, some of these symptoms which linger five to 10 years, as some of you on this call may know. So we really wanted to answer some key questions here, and that's uh, who is in the highest need of interventions? Because obviously resources are limited, so we have to come up with things and ways of identifying who really needs these interventions. And also we need to come up with the idea of what is the best intervention to treat those most in need. So my big shout out to all of you is thanks to you and the American Cancer Society, we can answer those questions. Next. I've developed um, with my with my background, I have developed a symptom management and survivorship handbook. I just finished the third edition, which meant I got to revise it again. And basically I've decided that probably about every year, every year-ish or so, I will be revising this for the for my whole professional life because we always have new things and new something important. And so we need to make sure that the latest information, and here's the picture of our symptom management handbook in uh, English. We also have translated all of the materials. Everything that I do also is done in the, in the Spanish language because we have a lot of Hispanic cancer survivors and family members across the country who are getting very, very little uh, supportive care services because we don't have the right services for them. So we have each chapter has a specific symptom and we, we have a symptom definition and description, including how the lay public talks about a symptom. We have strategies for self-management. We have when to talk with the provider and what to discuss. We have space for questions. So we really are hoping that when we give these handbooks to people, they really write down things and they take them with them to their provider visits so they really get their questions answered. And then we have up-to-date information on topics such as diet and physical activity and uh, cessation of nicotine, sun safety, stopping alcohol. Although we don't have 
you know, and we have a lot of resources that people can access should they, for example, want to get in touch with their local quit line. And then, of course, we have references. One of our big ones is the American Cancer Society and all the research that they've been doing over these many years. Now, what we do is we call each, call each person once a week uh, for 15, uh, well, excuse me, for 12 weeks. And we ask them what symptom they have. We refer them to the appropriate um, self-management strategies. And then if, it's, if their symptom is a certain severity, we also encourage them to let their provider know because there may be some, it may be beyond self-management and you need to do something else. And in the latest studies, we are actually also sending that symptom profile to the provider, pushing it out digitally so that the provider also get, knows that you or, or, or uh, the cancer survivor is, is suffering from certain symptoms at a fairly high level. And then when we call them after the first week, we ask them what strategies they used. And we talk a little bit about, you know, what they tried, what worked, what didn't, you know, and, and uh, hopefully encourage people to do this. And now, uh, by the way, this uh, intervention is both for uh, cancer survivors and caregivers. And we try and encourage, for example, we have one of our studies that focuses on specifically physical activity and diet. And we try and pair our, our survivor and caregivers so that they can sort of spear each other on and eating correctly and, and uh, doing physical activity. And believe it or not, these phone calls are only 10 to 15 minutes. They're in English or in Spanish, and they're at a time when it's convenient for you. So we call people at lunch hour, we call them in the evening, we call them on a Saturday. Next slide. Coupled with that, uh, because the handbook doesn't always work really well for everyone, we I've also developed a telephone interpersonal counseling intervention. This is a counseling intervention that can be delivered over the telephone. It's brief, it's focused, it's 30 minutes. And it's delivered by master's prepared counselors. We call uh, My staff call them on, on the phone. Um, to answer your question, the symptom management program is uh, out of Arizona, if you wanted to participate, you would need to let me know and we could screen you and possibly enroll you because we call you on the phone so you don't have to be anywhere. You know, you don't have to be in Arizona. Um, again, delivered in English and in Spanish, and there's eight counseling sessions, and these are the things we talk about to help you with mood and affect management, emotional expression, interpersonal communication, relationships, social support. And then we give follow-up and referral at week eight. This is an eight-week session. And again, the uh, when I started this program, it was all about accessibility. I wanted it to be so that people could call, you know, we could call people on the phone and deliver it. And of course, the handbook is printed, so we actually mail it to people. Um, and, you know, we've talked about digital, but most of the time our cancer survivors and caregivers say they like the printed because they like to be able to write on it. Next slide. So we've been testing this. Um, you wanted to know if it's partially funded by ACS or fully funded. Actually, we have several studies going on that uh, the, the Cancer Health Equity Research Center is fully funded by ACS. We also have several studies going on of, of a similar nature that are funded by the National Institutes of Health. So we start with uh, the handbook alone, 
Um, we're that's our recommendation based on a study we just finished, only adding counseling for those most in need. And, and we basically uh, psychological distress screening is part of standard of care. So we can find out if uh, people really need to have the counseling as well. I feel like the accessible weekly interaction with a live person in of itself is very therapeutic. I mean, who doesn't like to have a nice, friendly person call them on the phone and say, how are you doing? Oh, is that really what happened? Let's talk about that. Um, I think asking about strategies uh, is likely to encourage use. And we found in the last study that just closed that 70% of the people who started with the handbook got a response. In other words, their symptom severity went down. And I think by offering it in English and in Spanish, we have a much bigger reach and can really reach a lot of different people who normally um, would not have access to any kind of supportive care services. Uh, but because we do everything in Spanish as well, it really does open a lot of doors for people. So I thought I'd end this uh, presentation because I was told I had to keep it short with, with some comments from the cancer survivors and the caregivers. And I just, I just loved, I, I mean, the overwhelming majority think, thought it was beneficial. So our survivor says, I enjoyed talking to the coach. I liked that it was very flexible and manageable. I would recommend the study to somebody else. Another person said it made me just, it made me think about what things to ask my doctor, good tools that I learned and still use, enjoy to talk with someone every week. It was very helpful to talk it through. And very worthwhile, very fantastic study, provides a lot of knowledge, helpful resource to those very ill. And the caregivers equally found that the handbook, uh, you can't buy the books yet, Amanda. Uh, you know, equally well in the book was very informative. I feel like, uh, you know, Maria and I feel like it should uh, be offered to all patients. It was great for both people because it was concise and well thought out and easy to use. And it worked out awesome. You were able to work around my schedule. And right now we are offering it free through our various grant mechanisms and we are in the process of exploring at some point whether we will begin to offer it in, an, in another way. Um, and I haven't, you know, we haven't quite got there yet. But at this point, uh, again, it doesn't matter what state you're in. You can, you know, contact me and we can have, I can have a recruiter, um, you know, I can have a recruiter uh, call you. And if you qualify for any of these studies, you would get a handbook as part of that. So that's my, that's my story. I absolutely love my research. I feel like, you know, it warms my heart because I really feel like people think it's beneficial to them. And my goal in my nursing career has been to help people and to help heal them and to help them move through their illness and, and, and move forward. So thank you so much for raising the money to help me do this work. Thank you, Dr. Badger. And you answered all the questions as we went along. So thank you for that. Um, we really appreciate you doing this research to help fight cancer disparities. That's a huge, a huge project of the American Cancer Society and ensuring that people get the support they need. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, we'll be happy to hear more about your research as you get more and more results. Thank you. Thank you.
All right, now we're gonna move on to Emily. <laughs> this is Emily Carney. She is a team supervisor at our National Cancer Information Center or our NCIC. She's been with the American Cancer Society for eight and a half years and began supporting our health insurance assistance service in January of 2021. She loves working with patients and caregivers and connecting our callers with the resources that can help them as they navigate through their cancer journey. She lives in Athens, Georgia with her husband and her two-year-old son, Jack. Take it away, Emily. Hi, thank you all so much for having me. Um, I'm really honored to be here um, with other presenters and um, yeah, I'm very excited to, to share the work of the, the Health Insurance Assistance Service with y'all. Um, so uh, Access Healthcare is consistently identified as a, a top concern for people in the United States and of course also for the American Cancer Society. Uh, so the mission of our Health Insurance Assistance Service is to really discover solutions that will help cancer patients who have lost or are in danger of losing their healthcare coverage. Um, next slide, please. So the HIGH team uh, works to understand trends and just kind of general issues of concern to, to cancer patients and their families related to access to care. Um, and our primary role is to provide individualized information and resources to constituents to connect them uh, with insurance options that will work for them. Um, so we assist cancer patients, uh, survivors, uh, people who are, are symptomatic and kind of anyone in those kind of categories who are having needs related to health insurance, whether they are um, seeking insurance options and don't have any coverage currently. Um, they may have health insurance right now, but are gonna lose it soon for whatever reason, um, or potentially experiencing a life change that impacts their health insurance status. So um, there are actually a lot of things that happen, um, just kind of life events that can impact your health insurance status. So um, moving to a different state, um, divorce, uh, marriage, a death in the family or birth in the family. Um, and then of course, loss of job is probably the one that we th think of more traditionally, um, but there are lots of different situations that can impact that health insurance status. So yeah, we're happy to talk to anybody who's experiencing um, one of those um, events. And of course, we'll also speak um, with any you know concerned family members. Um, we speak with friends um, and even you know some healthcare professionals. Um, to just discuss potential options for, for their loved ones. Next slide, please. So who is our team? So um, our team is primarily made up of our seven frontline specialists at NCIC. So their highest patient resource specialist is their title. Um, those are the folks taking phone calls um, directly from, from constituents every day. Um, they're, yeah, they're the ones having these um, really in-depth insurance conversations with, um, with you know, whoever's calling in to, to discuss that with us. Um, we also have two team supervisors, myself included. Um, we have one director who supports us. And then of course, um, we also have two performance support specialists um, and we're all really there to, again, provide guidance and really just support the team as they work um, directly with our, our callers. Um, we also partner um, as a team with two uh, research professors from the Georgetown University Health Policy Institute, and they work with us to really keep us up to date on any legislative changes um, or just kind of general areas of concern, um, potential litigation to be on the lookout for, um, just related to, to private coverage, and then also Medicaid and CHIP across the country. Um, they help us with 
um, regular um, calls throughout the year and also um, periodic trainings um, for the team as well. Um, and then additionally, we partner with ACSCAN, who's our um, advocacy partner organization, um, to share constituent stories, um, of course, their permission, um, and trends related to, to healthcare coverage so that, that they can use this to advocate for, for public policy change at the, the local level, state, and even the, the national level as well. Next slide, please. So what exactly do we do? Uh, <laughs> Next slide. Um, so our, our primary role on the Health Insurance Assistance Service um, is really, again, to help um, patients identify whatever health insurance options they may be eligible for. So when someone calls in and speaks to a highest representative, um, we're going to gather information from them regarding their, their diagnosis, um, where they live, um, their income, household size, sort of just a lot of information to help us really narrow down the options that are going to be um, available to them. Um, and then depending um, on different um, different things, but particularly on the time of the year, constituents may be able to sign up um, for coverage through open enrollment. So that's typically going to be at the end of the year. Um, that would be just an open period for, for kind of everybody to, to sign up for coverage for the, the following year. Um, but if it's outside of that open enrollment period, we'll look for special enrollment periods they may be eligible for. So there's certain um, criteria or, again, kind of life events that might um, open up an enrollment period for you if you're experiencing those. So we'll um, really hunt to see if there's any, um, any options available for people. And we also share patient stories, data, and trends, again, with ACSCAN um, so they can, can use those to advocate for policy changes. Um, highest constituent stories have been used recently um, and some, some comments to the IRS related to some, some insurance related changes that they made. Um, and in the past, highest constituents have even gone as far as to testify before Congress. So um, yeah, it's a really great partnership that we have with ACSCAN where we're able to, to work with them to help identify, um, again, trends, but specific stories. Um, yeah, um, it's great. That's wonderful. They went through the 800 number. That's us. Yeah. Um, additionally, we, we offer information related to insurance and accessibility to insurance related to the Affordable Care Act. So um, sometimes callers are interested in just kind of like clarification and, and definitions around insurance terminology. Um, it can all be really confusing. It's almost like learning a new language when you're dealing with um, health insurance. Um, so, so that's something that we, we help walk people through. And also just what rights they're granted through the Affordable Care Act. So again, really working to clarify and empowering constituents with, with that knowledge to make the best decisions related um, to, to their health care coverage for themselves. Um, okay, next slide, please. All right, so some additional eligibility that we're typically looking for um, in order to, to be able to assess through the Health Insurance Assistance Service. Um, Again, I think I've said this a couple of times, but you, you would like you to be a cancer patient, of course, survivor, um, symptomatic or even asymptomatic with um, increased risk factors, or again, somebody calling on their behalf, um, like a family member or friend will work with you, you know, if you are calling on behalf of someone else, just with the information that you're able to provide to see what might be potential options for folks. Um, constituents must um, also speak English or Spanish. Um, we, we do use a translation service for our Spanish speaking constituents. Um, you must live in or will move to the United States and, and Washington, D.C. So 
Um, we don't typically assist if someone's just traveling to the United States for treatment. Um, and then also um, lawfully present in the US. Um, and then 64 years old or younger or ineligible for Medicare. Um, so typically um, we're walking patients through um, options through either you know, private coverage or Medicaid. Um, but if constituents do, you know, want to talk about Medicare coverage or like a supplemental plan, we're definitely happy to provide information, um, you know, as much information as we have. And then if they want to get into more specifics or need some some kind of advocacy, we would refer, refer to a partner organization like um, the Medicare Rights Center potentially. Um, so we can get them connected with, with whoever's going to be the best um, option for them. Um, and then again, um, uninsured, uh, insured, but in, in transition or, or having a life change that results in the loss of insurance. Um, again, most typically, um, the, the most common situation we get is, is the loss of a job, um, you know, often because we're, we're speaking with cancer patients. Um, it can be really difficult to, um, to work during treatment. Um, so that can end up, you know, folks can, can lose their jobs. So yeah, definitely wanna, um, work with them to, to see what their options are. Um, yeah, next slide. Okay, um, so I just wanted to include some, some year-to-date stats so far. So this is um, highest cases um, through the end of July. So we probably have a few more as we're um, with mid-August now. Um, but as of the end of July, we created um, 491 total highest cases. Um, so that's you know working with approximately 500 individual um, constituent cases. Um, 275 of those resulted in a clear insurance resolution for the constituent, so we call that problem resolved, um, or multiple options that the constituent could pursue, so um, we call that caller pursuing available options, so they were going to think about what was going to be the best fit for them and, and um, pursue whichever one um, was going to be the best. Um, and then, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, there, there's not a clear path to insurance coverage outside of open enrollment. Um, you know, particularly in states that haven't um, expanded Medicaid access. Um, so, of course, we work with those constituents as well to, to look into, you know, potential charity care options. Um, there are, you know, specific hospitals called America's Essential Hospitals that um, can work with, um, with those callers potentially as well. Um, but this is also where our, our advocacy work with ACS CAN comes in. Um, so we've marked uh, so far 205 cases of interest for our, our ACS CAN partners. And these are cases that we've flagged for them as, as issues they might, might want to look into, um, callers who have agreed to share their story, um, and just really, again, try to make a difference in the lives of others as, as we advocate for, for changes to the, the system to open up access for, for more people. Next slide. All right. Um, and then, of course, I also wanted to include some recent highest success stories. So these are real um, cases. Um, they're not, um, uh, obviously, we've removed like identifying information, but um, there's the one constituent, we'll call her Sandra. She uh, is a 61-year-old, uh, lives in Tennessee with her husband. Uh, she did not have insurance coverage and had been recently diagnosed with cancer and, of course, was interested in what her, her insurance options would be. Um, she shared that she had a household of two and their monthly income was around $2,000. Um, that was primarily her husband um, was receiving disability. Um, and so the highest agent she spoke with was able to share that she was able, uh, she's eligible, excuse me, for a special enrollment period based on her income um, and that she could sign up for a plan through the federally facilitated marketplace. Uh, we call it the FFM, but that's if you go to healthcare.gov. 
um, and that she'd be eligible for premium tax credits as well if she selected a silver plan. So that's a more um, cost saving for her. Um, and then the highest agent shared contact information for the FFM and then also for um, the Patient Advocate Foundation, which is a really great um, ACS partner organization that can assist with um, kind of case management, navigation, um, yeah, that kind of, that kind of um, extra assistance. And then uh, another constituent, we'll call her Lisa. She's 29 years old, lives in Utah. Um, she works part-time and her job does not offer insurance. Um, and she was experiencing symptoms of cervical cancer. Just wanted to know kind of what her insurance options were. Uh, she was a household of one with a monthly income of around $600. Um, so the highest agent was able to share that, that Utah has adopted Medicaid expansion and given um, her income, it um, appeared that she was eligible um, for Medicaid in her state based on that. Um, but she also shared information on the state's breast and cervical cancer early detection program, um, which is a really wonderful program that provides full Medicaid benefits to uninsured individuals under age 65 who have been screened for breast and cervical cancer under that, that CDC program um, and are found to need treatment for either breast or cervical cancer, including any um, precancerous conditions or early stage cancer. Um, so those are just a couple recent um, constituents that we worked with. Um, we have lots of lots of stories like this, which are really great. Um, you know, folks that are going through a really difficult time, don't know what their coverage is, um, and really just yeah are looking for options. So how do you get in touch with us? Call us at the one eight hundred number. Um, yeah, so we're definitely happy to speak with you again. Any questions related to insurance? If someone's looking for coverage, about to lose coverage, um, or doesn't have insurance coverage, we're happy to look and see what might be available. Um, high specialists are available Monday through Friday, um, 8 a.m. to, to 5 p.m. Um, so if someone needed to call outside of those hours, um, we would we ask them to try to call us then. Um, but if they need it, if they weren't able to, we could refer them again to another organization that could also assist. But um, yeah, we're happy to, to talk with anyone. Um, I think that might be my last one. <laughs> Thank you, Emily. That is a wonderful service you all provide and having used it and having it saved my life. Thank you. Um, and if anybody needs to know, just call the 800-227-2345 between those hours and they will help you as best they can. So now, as she said, access to care is so important to those who are facing cancer. So our last two guests are going to be talking all about access to care. Maria Robinson will be joining us to share about our Hope Lodge program. And Maria is actually a 15-year survivor of anal cancer, and she started at ACS almost 12 years ago as a part-time coordinator at the Hope Lodge in Memphis, Tennessee. She then moved to the relay world as a development manager before going back to manage the Hope Lodge there in Memphis. She says abs she absolutely loves her job and this mission of ACS. We're ready for you, Maria. All right. Well, thank you. I'm just honored. Um, Relay is deep in my heart. I have to tell you a little background story. So when I um, was newly diagnosed, I had a, a friend of mine who actually in, invited me to our local Relay for Life in the community. So I didn't even know about ACS, didn't have a clue. You know, it was just a brand new journey for me. So um, I, I, I bleed purple and I love it. And I got to be on the development side. So I understand and I love the volunteers on Relay. I can't say enough great things about them. But I also love my Hope Lodge world. So um, 
Hope Lodge is a wonderful place. As you can see, this picture right here, she said she was so sweet and she was so excited. She just finished her treatments. And then we had another gentleman in the background who also had just finished his treatments as well. We do have a bell where they ring the bell and things like that. So it is, Hope Lodge is just like she said, is more than just a room, more than just a space for her to um, stay. It was and still is relief to my heart and to my soul. So it's, a, it's an overwhelming, uh, amazing place. And it truly is a home away from home for so many families. Um, so anyway, our Hope Lodge program. I mean, look at all those Hope Lodges. It's amazing. Um, and what I can tell you is we're growing and it's exciting. I mean, they want at least 10 more Hope Lodges. So things are happening on the back end of the Hope Lodge world. Um, you know, the, the thing that's really about it is, you know, where's the largest need, you know, number one, and then funding, you know, we, we definitely need the money for the capital campaign, but then it's gotta be ongoing support um, from those referring partners and hospital systems as well. And then the land, you know, I mean, um, let's just say, for example, in California, that's challenging, you know, to find land um, that's affordable and things like that. So um, definitely when I talk about, you know, all the money you guys are raising, it it helps. It helps for stuff like this because it's not free and it's a, it's a large expense, but it is a need. So I am excited that um, it is it is growing and Oklahoma City just opened their doors a few weeks ago. So we were excited about that. Um, but I can tell you in Memphis, we opened our doors in 2010 and we are located right next door to Sun Studios. If y'all know anything about Sun Studios where Elvis Presley, um, you know, got his first recording, you know, song and Jerry Lee Lewis and all of them. So we're a little, we're a little passionate. We love our Elvis and everything in Memphis. <laughs> okay, next slide. Um, of course, the Hope Lodge is more than just a room. It's for care support, access to treatment, and a healing environment. Um, and I can't tell you enough about not only the care support that ACS provides, like Emily had talked about, but the guests support each other. I mean, it's almost like a healing for themselves because they can lift each other up and talk about everything that they're going through personally. And I know I wish I had that. You know, when I was going through treatment, I wish that I had known, you know, that I could talk to other people about things that you're going through. So internally, it's just a great um, support system. Uh, access to treatment. I mean, the, the numbers are just unbelievable of all the, the countries. And I can't tell you global. Um, just in Memphis alone, we get, we've had patients come from Egypt. Um, we actually get a lot of patients that come from Puerto Rico for a liver cancer, for liver transplants. So, you know, we're, we're using all, um, you know, translators and everything else. You know, it's not just people coming from Mississippi and Arkansas and Tennessee. Um, we get people from all over. And another thing that I, you know, strongly encourage you guys to do is talk about the program. So, you know, even if a person is not getting treatment, if you don't have a Hope Lodge locally, you know, I completely understand, but tell them about the Hope Lodge program. We get a lot of patients, you know, they can't get treatment necessarily in Memphis, but we have the MD Anderson that they want to go for research down in Houston. So there are options out there for people to stay. And um, I also want to talk about if you'll just go back one more time, sorry. Um, when we were talking about access, you to got a little click happy. 
<laughs> we have got uh, St. Jude here in Memphis, Tennessee. So Memphis is unique because we are able to um, provide care for pediatric patients. I've got some pediatric patients here right now. So if you're you know, 12 and up, uh, you know, St. Jude pretty much has that housing taken care of, but depending on the size of the family, they may need to come and stay with us. If, you know, St. Jude can only carry, let's just say four, a family of four, you know, we may be able to accommodate that or split the family up where, you know, dad is staying with us and a couple of kids and mom might be staying at one of their lodgings. So um, we're able to provide uh, a little bit unique situation in Memphis where maybe some of the other lodges are not able to do. Uh, you can go now, sorry. <laughs> um, and then just this is the numbers, you know, 500,000 nights of free lodging per year, uh, 29,000 cancer patients and caregivers serve per year and 55 million, let me say that again, 55 million in lodging costs saved per year and then 6 million nights of free lodging to cancer patients since 1970. All right, next slide. And this is just a little bit about the, the numbers in Memphis in 2022. And I can just tell y'all already, I was looking at that right before we came on. We've already, just now until July, have already served 550 guests, and that's just in July. So that was, all those guests more than we have the whole year of last year. We've already provided um, 4,736 nights, and that was just July, July, January to July. And then we've saved them so far 750,000 um, hotel cost. And then we also have transportation here. So we um, have two vans where we take guests to and from treatment. So we have provided over 1,500 rides already just this year. So it's good. So, you know, because, and, and again, our um, referring partners, some are right down the street and some are all the way across Memphis. So we are running, running all over the place in Memphis. <laughs> okay, next slide. And I will say ACS is definitely opened up. Uh, what we're trying to do is provide uh, what the patients need. So they've opened it up to more special accommodations. For example, um, before you had to stay at least three nights in order to stay at the Hope Lodge. Well, now you can, if you need to just stay one night, you know, maybe it's just a follow-up appointment or maybe you're getting chemo. So it might be just, you're going to come the night before, receive your chemo and drive home or however that looks, whatever treatment they're getting. So we are taking that. Um, uh, typically, it, you have to live 40 miles or an hour commute to come stay at the Hope Lodge. We are doing less than that. So if there's a patient that, you know, maybe it is a transportation problem, you know, it's a radiation every day and, and they just can't, you know, get, get to and from treatment every day, we're going to eliminate that burden for them. And so they can come stay at the Hope Lodge and then we can uh, take them to and from treatment. Uh, additional caregivers. So, you know, there might be a situation where you've got an elderly uh, mom and dad, you know, maybe the dad's the patient. And so maybe the daughter needs to come and stay with them too. So we'll accommodate to have that extra person in the room just to be with them uh, to help them through their this journey. And then they can also use the Hope Lodge um, for a day use. So for example, if um, they just need to rent, they have 
appointment early in the morning and they need to rest at the lodge and maybe have a follow-up later that day, they can definitely do that as well. And then I talked about how we are also accepting uh, minors at the age of 12. I will say now, these special accommodations, some of the Hope Lodges, they are slammed packed. So some of these special accommodations is not going, they cannot um, do these as often as, for example, us in Memphis, because we're not as full. But I know some of the lodges are extremely full and they may or may not be able to accommodate this. Um, and then we also do um, stays for like our surgical patients. So if the patient is in the hospital, then the caregivers can come stay with us. So they're not having to get a hotel or something like that when they're um, when their loved one is in the hospital. Okay, next slide. And this is just some um, exciting news that we've had recently that has come up. We did have COVID restrictions um, where they had to be, you know, had to be uh, vaccinated or provide a negative COVID test. We've lifted, lifted that. They no longer have to wear a mask. Now, of course, if they are sick or do have COVID, they cannot come stay at here at all. And if they um, start coming down with COVID symptoms, then they will have to have provide we'll have to stay somewhere else just for the safety of all guests, but we have lifted um, our COVID restrictions. Okay, next slide. And then, so this is Mr. Dennis. He is a longtime volunteer with us. I just love him so much. He, him and his wife actually stayed at the Nashville Hope Lodge, but live in Memphis. Unfortunately, she passed away, but he wanted to give back and he has been driving for us for years. I cannot, I can't say enough great things about Mr. Dennis. But I wanted to talk about volunteer opportunities um, at the Hope Lodge. So, of course, we always need drivers. You know, we always need people that will serve a meal. If you guys don't even live here, y'all could have um, the meal catered to a lodge. You know, they love that. I mean, it's the last thing that a, um, a patient wants to do is to think about how they're going to, you know, coming back to the lodge to cook a meal and all that kind of stuff. It's just one less thing. Um, if you know somebody that, uh, if you want to do an activity, um, if, you know, like if you want to paint or somebody plays an instrument or you want to play a game or bingo, we always love that. Um, you know, even if somebody wanted to come and just help us restock, to restock our guest closets with cleaning supplies and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we're open. And then I also wanted to uh, give us a shout out. So we all have Amazon wish lists. Um, so anytime you, you know, get our Amazon wish list, we'd love to share that. Any, any and all items on our wish list, <laughs> all the items practically you need in your home, we need in our home. So, um, and I think that's it for me. Yeah. So y'all have any questions about the Hope Lodge or Hope Lodge program? I can't, I can't hear. Heidi, you are still muted. There, is that better? Yes. <laughs> it, wouldn't let, it wouldn't let me come off mute. Um, Maria, most of the questions have been answered as you go along. So I was saying your passion and enthusiasm just shines right through. And, oh, and ACS okay. and Hope Lodge is blessed to have you. And thank you so much for sharing that Hope Lodge is a place for people to have a home away from home when they need it most. Yeah. So, so thank, thank you, you for so what much. you do. <laughs> yes. And I hope all of you can stay on. I know we're running a little bit late, but everybody's got such great, great 
information to share and their passion is just flowing. So we mm -hmm. have our last speaker who is Michelle and I'm probably gonna slaughter your last name. Is it Pacini <laughs> Edson? So close, it's Pacini Edson. Pacini, that was my second guess. Um, she is the Associate Director for Community Implementation and she has been with ACS for four years, starting with the NCIC as a patient support specialist. And now she works with um, the Community implement Implementation Team because she believes that everyone deserves access to care. Michelle works for ACS because of how cancer has impacted her life. And she knows that we will be the ones to end cancer as we know it. She's going to fill us in about the transportation and lodging grants that ACS is gifting to health systems across the country. Thank you, Michelle. Sorry about your name. No worries. And thank you guys for allowing me time to speak today about our community implementation team. I'm going to keep this very brief. Um, thank you guys for hanging on. So um, the community implementation team is part of patient support. We're a team of 33 individuals who support the access to care programs in the United States and Guam. Our portfolio of programs is listed on the screen, but today I'll be sharing about Road to Recovery and our grant program. So next slide, please. All right, to start, I want to show our newest PSA that just went out about Road to Recovery. You'll likely find this on our social channels. If you could hit play. People facing cancer, often what's standing between them and life-saving treatment, is a ride to get there. Today, I'm ringing the bell. Así va a ser. No es cierto. Got everything? You can change someone's life in as little as one hour a week. You are so welcome. Join the American Cancer Society. You got this. To use your drive for good. I'll be there. Thank you so much for the job. Volunteer at cancer.org slash drive to help save lives. Perfect, thank you. So like the video showed, the Road to Recovery Volunteer Driver Program is a no-cost, no-worry ride to treatment. Often cancer care means frequent medical appointments. Sometimes certain treatments does not allow a patient to drive themselves, uh, and their support systems may not always be able to take them to their appointments. Sadly, we've learned that people without reliable means of transportation will delay or cancel their treatments, which can sometimes lead to worse outcomes. Our program was created to help address this critical need by providing free rides to patients with cancer to their cancer-related appointments. We've recently utilized a user-friendly mobile app called Ground Trip. This will connect patients with a volunteer driver. It's a very similar process to Lyft or Uber. Um, Road to Recovery is completely free, and the patient would need to register with our National Cancer Information Center to get started. Our volunteers all submit to background and motor vehicle checks. So along with it being free, it's very safe to use. We did close the program in 2020 due to the pandemic and have been working on reopening in every major city in every state since 2021. 
Uh, so far this year nationally, we have been able to provide over 26,000 free rides for patients with cancer thanks to our generous volunteers. And in many locations, we have Road to Recovery. We also have a patient transportation grant. For local travel, our patient transportation grant is meant to be a backup resource for when a Road to Recovery volunteer is unavailable. And next slide, please. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, uh, transportation can be a significant barrier to receiving cancer treatment. Another barrier is lodging for patients who must travel out of their hometowns to receive care. The American Cancer Society award grants to health systems to help alleviate these strains on patients with cancer. This grant process is held annually. It is competitive and a grant application must be provided separately for transportation and lodging. We grant to health systems and community organizations currently. Uh, in 2022, the American Cancer Society invested $10.8 million fundraise dollars in 613 grants nationally. The impact of that was that 75,143 patients received 737,944 services using our grant funds. So they either got a ride, they got a gas card, they got a parking pass, or they got a hotel room. And a part of our grant process is that the systems must submit reports to us on how they're utilizing their grant funds to ensure that we're being good stewards of our donation dollars. In those reports, they submit patient feedback, and I would like to share two of those stories. So the first one is, without the assistance provided by the gas cards from my health system by the American Cancer Society grants, I wouldn't have been able to make my treatment appointments for radiation every day. The price of gas nowadays is just too much, and I shouldn't have to make decisions between buying food or getting treatment to save my life. So I thank you all so much. The second, I actually have a hard time reading this one without crying, so I will try my best. It says, uh, before COVID, my husband and I were big into Relay for Life. We would fundraise, walk, and promote the American Cancer Society to anyone who would listen, as I was a cancer survivor and wanted to pass on the support I received. During COVID, I lost my husband to cancer, and now I find myself with a reoccurrence of my own cancer. My life is different now. I cannot drive. I don't have reliable family or friend support to transport me to all my appointments, and I was not sure how I would manage to pay for transportation, food, medication, and my household bills. I was embarrassed to admit that I honestly was having a hard time choosing between food and paying for a lift or Uber so I could get to treatment. Finding out that there's a grant that can assist me by providing transportation for me has reduced my anxiety significantly and makes facing cancer again feel manageable. So with that, I thank you all for the work you do every day to help us fund these very important programs and I will give it back to Heidi. Oh, you're muted, Heidi. Is that better? Thank you, Michelle. Um, your stories that you read also have me um, tearing up. And I think it gives us more passion to go out and spread the word, spread the mission, raise those dollars so we can help everyone who needs it. Rides and lodging are so, so important. So tonight, we'd like to thank all of our guest speakers, your passion, your expertise, your information was amazing to listen to. And we appreciate you spending your time with us. And I hope everyone has learned one or two things tonight that you can take back to your communities.
to put ACS out in your communities and to inform them about just how important it is that we raise these donations for our American Cancer Society for those facing cancer. Again, this call is going to be posted on acsresources.org, which if you haven't bookmarked it yet, you need to do, because that's the go-to place for all of this information. It'll be on Let's Talk, our Let's Talk page early next week with some of the resources that were mentioned. And Kayla will be sending out an email with a direct link after it's posted. Um, Kayla, thank you as always for putting together such a great program with you and all of the staff. And thank you everyone for joining us tonight. Let's have a wonderful rest of our evening and let's let's go spread the mission